Well, take your Bibles and open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. For the past three months, we've taken a break from our study of Mark's gospel to look at the glory of God in marriage and the family and also in singleness and in being a parent and in being a child. We're going to wrap up that part of our excursus from Mark this morning, but I trust this will be only a, a, a pride and a, an encouragement for you to study and apply these principles all the more. Second Timothy <coughs> chapter 3, verse four, 14, rather. Paul speaking to his young disciple, Timothy, who is now the pastor at the church of Ephesus. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. As I said, we're gonna wrap up this, this summer series that I thought would be three or four weeks, and I think this is the 13th uh, week that we've been studying this. Uh, and honestly, we could spend the next year on any one of these uh, relationships, any one of these roles that we have, and there would be plenty for God's word to inform our hearts on. But I trust that these are only magnets that pull you in to see that the scriptures has, have much to say about who you are, your roles and your goals as a husband, a wife, a single, a child, a grandparent. Let me give you a caveat though. Today's sermon, today's topic is impossible to do in one simple Sermon. Parenting deserves much more attention and greater specificity than any of the other roles that we've considered, and much more than we could do on a Sunday morning. And the format, by the way, of a sermon is a one way communication and not the best way for us to discuss parenting since it has such broad application. For example, parenting looks very different with a two month old than it does a five year old, it looks different from a five year old than it does a 12 year old. Far different with a young teen, an older teen, a collegian, a child out of the home. How can we apply biblical principles of, principles of parenting to different ages and states and, and uh, growth development uh, uh, categories and chapters with our kids? It's not the same. You know, this was really impressed on me when uh, my, my boys were younger. I, we used to have something called Donut Saturday. My, my wife uh, was with the kids all week, and so I would give her Saturday morning as a break. She would go off, I think, to Barnes & Noble and just study, have a latte, and, and have her little time of reading and, and privacy with herself. And I took the boys out to, to kind of a discipleship talk uh, at a donut shop, and it was always wonderful. I took them straight up to the counter. They pressed their faces up against that glass, and I said, you can have anything you want and as much as you want as long as you eat it all. That was another whole parenting uh, thing that I learned about. But that was wonderful when the boys were two, four, and six. And even six, eight, and 10. 
But I noticed when our oldest got into junior high that the gap between him and my youngest was far greater. And then when I had a high schooler and someone in elementary school, it was even greater still. And so from that standpoint, from that moment on, we tried to meet as a group, but it was far better applicable when we were by ourselves, me with each of our sons. And I learned the hard way that parenting feels, looks, and applies very different depending on the age of your child. So, beginning on Wednesday nights, September 25th and following, we're gonna take a couple months and we're gonna have a workshop type sermon study with each other. Any and all parents are invited on Wednesday nights. And we're gonna talk through parenting in the different dimensions of our child rearing. So I hope that that's, uh, people have been asking, what are we gonna do on Sunday nights? We're gonna talk about parenting. Now, if you say, well, I've already uh, parented my kids, they're out of the home, or uh, I don't have children. These are all principles that are, are applicable to you. Someone asked me recently in, a, in an interview, what is your favorite book on leadership? And without even thinking, instinctively, I said, Shepherding the Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. And the reason is all of the principles that go into raising a child are the principles of influence that we can all enact with each other. So we're gonna have an, all today is is an introduction and a, uh, an advertisement, as it were, to come back on Wednesday nights beginning on the 25th and we'll start diving in very specifically. Now, I really enjoy playing golf. I'm not good at golf. I can hit the ball occasionally and uh, it's just hard for me to devote a half a day to something like that. I used to be able to play more than I do, but I love golf. And there's a term in golf that's used quite often and extended, it's extended beyond golf. And it's probably something some of you are familiar with, but you may not know its meaning. There's much debate about the origin of the term, but it's called a mulligan. Now, I read this week about a mulligan, and it's basically traced back to two different guys, neither of which have honorable mentions. And both of these men, we don't know the exact origin, it was in the 1915-1920 era, uh, both of these men named Mulligan were, were purported to have cheated, to have hit a shot they didn't like, and then they said, I'm going to hit a a follow-up shot, a replacement shot, here it is, a do-over shot to cover their errant shot. Now, that is utterly unthinkable at the PGA level. But honestly, if you pay, play golf with a lot of friends, sometimes people say you get a mulligan off the first tee or a mulligan each nine, or you can have a mulligan per 18. It's kind of a gentleman's agreement that if you, if you want to have a do-over, you can Studying for this this week and thinking about this series we're gonna do on Wednesday nights has so embedded in my heart the desire that I wish I had multiple mulligans in my parenting. You know, I think of, of the, the man that God gave three sons to when they were each born. I hope I'm more mature. I hope I'm more biblically knowledgeable. I hope I've learned more. But I, I just wish I could push delete and go back and do so many things. I trust I'm wiser, more experienced, but there are no mulligans for parenting. But let me tell you some good news, parents. There's grace, there's forgiveness, there's hope. 
God knows, he sees, he cares. There is never a time where you would stop and say, it's too late to start having the kind of influence that I want to have. So for this morning, then, I want us to take a very high altitude view of parenting that will serve as an introduction to our Wednesday night study. And I want to begin very quickly in all of these things that we're about to talk about. We're going to come back, circle the wagons on in our Wednesday night study. So if you want to know more about them, know that it is coming in that study. We're going to begin by talking about some myths that Christian parents believe about parenting. There's no lack of material on Christian parenting. There's books and blogs and videos and podcasts and conferences and websites and Facebook all to tell you how you should be a better parent. But let's think about those things and press them against what some people believe as true, but these are actually myths. They're not true. And I got, I don't know, 10 or so. We'll be very fast. (coughs) Number one, the goal of parenting, these are myths. Don't take notes and say, wow, this is what Rick is saying his outline is. These are not, this is not my outline. These are just myths. Number one, the goal of parenting is compliance. That the goal of parenting is to get your kids to do what you say is compliance. The idea is that if I can cause my children to comply with my instructions and corrections and commands, then they will succeed and be on the path toward Christ. Now certainly there is some truth to that. Teaching authority and submission and lordship and, 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 and submission as, is all a paradigm for Christ's lordship and, and our servant. That's all paradigmatic. But let me suggest that you really rethink the goal of parenting. The goal of parenting is to glorify God by faithfully parenting. Let me say that again. The goal of Christian parenting is to glorify God by faithfulness. Faithfulness to two big categories that we're going to see in just a moment in our text. That's biblical instruction and a godly example. But let me say something that might shock you. Salvation of your children as a Christian parent, salvation is not the goal of Christian parenting. It's our desire. It's our prayer. It's our hope. But it's not our goal. Let me explain what I mean. Goals are are, are ideas that you can achieve. I have a goal of running a marathon, then you run hard and you run a marathon. I have a goal of X, Y, and Z. You work hard and you do it. There's difference between having a goal that you can achieve and being desires that you want to pray about. If the goal of Christian parenting is that every child becomes a Christian and one doesn't, have we been a failure? No, no, the goal is faithfulness because listen, Theology matters. Salvation is God's work, not a parent's work. We're gonna express more of that in our series. Oh, sure, I understand when we say, boy, my goal is to have my child saved. Be careful that you put a goal where there are metrics that you can meet that after you put this equation together, your kid's naturally converted. It doesn't happen like that. Our goal is to be faithful Our goal is to be honorable. Our goal is to do what God has asked us to do, commanded us to do as parents. Only God can save a soul. Therefore, faithfulness to our parental responsibilities is our ultimate goal. Remember, behavior modification is not the same as true salvation and godliness. 
We want to be careful, we'll study this in depth, that we're not raising Pharisees inadvertently where they have the idea that if I do and I try and I achieve, that God looks at me and smiles and we are unwittingly teaching a works-based salvation to our kids that if they do hard enough and try hard enough, then they can somehow please God. It's results-oriented parenting versus faithfulness-oriented parenting. And we'll see in a moment in 2 Timothy 3, faithfulness in example and faithfulness in instruction are our goals. And then God uses our example and our instruction to put together wonderfully to woo the soul to him. A second myth. Kids are basically good. Kids are basically good. If you think that, have a child. (laughs) Specifically have a two-year-old. One of the first words our kids learn is no. And the second word is mine. It's just bred in them. Kids, listen, I love kids. I love children. I want grandchildren very bad. You can tell my middle son that. But they're not little bundles of goodness. Oh, they're cute. They're adorable. We love them. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? As we continue to be reminded, theology is life and life is theology. What we think about God has ultimate and immediate bearings on everything, especially and including our parenting. What is your doctrine of depravity when it comes to your children? How sick in the human, is the human heart in your theology? How dead is your understanding of the soul before God? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul told the Ephesians in chapter two, verse one. Why is that important? I beg you, if you hear nothing else, hear this. If sin is not your child's problem, then the gospel will never be the solution. They have weaknesses, they have problems, they have tendencies, all of that I get. But they come to us as sinners. And you know where they got that? From their parents. And you know where the parents got that? From their parents, and it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. We inherit a sinful inclination and disposition. Because sin is the problem, then the gospel and Christ's sacrifice of himself on the cross for the sins of those who believe his resurrection from the dead gives us hope. I've said it before, let me say it again. You cannot do anything to mess your kid up. They come that way. They come messed up with the noetic, the thinking impact of sin that's, that's in them. The problem is not outside to infect their heart. The problem is their heart that's agitated by the outside. Kids are not basically good. Oh, they're sweet, they're kind, they're cuddly, but they need salvation. And salvation is not, is not accomplished by good parenting principles. It's accomplished by the saving work of God in their heart which is why we connect them by example and instruction to God and he can woo them with that instruction and example towards salvation. So that's another myth that kids are basically good. Now, don't go rearrange your theology. I mean, your vocabulary would say, oh, he's such a good kid. Oops, sorry, 
We understand what you mean. No one is undermining the depravity of man by saying, what a good kid. But just remember, he's really not. She's really not. And if you doubt that, then work in the four-year-old nursery downstairs. Number three, third myth. The Bible is insufficient for raising kids. The Bible is insufficient for raising kids. It's easy to think that we need psychological techniques. We need how-to books. We need blogs. We need Facebook articles. What we really need is a clear understanding of what God has said about himself and about life about the good, the bad, and the ugly, about how to live in a broken world, about a worldview that can only come by by verse-by-verse understanding of God's word and theological collating of those verses so we build a worldview we can interpret and understand the world in which we live. The Bible is completely sufficient. 2 Peter 1, 2 and 3 It's sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's everything. It's comprehensively. The Bible is sufficient. And if you, there are helpful books. There are helpful blogs. I don't think there's anything helpful on Facebook. Did I say that? I think I did. Um, Nothing wrong with seeing things that help explain scripture. Let's be careful that we don't look to formulas outside the scripture that might actually undermine the simple admonition that Paul told Timothy to teach from the scripture and to be examples of what you've learned. Number four, a fourth myth. Church is to provide the main spiritual guidance. Church is to provide the main spiritual guidance. I call this curbology. When I was a youth pastor, Adam and I have talked about this many times in his own ministry. There's this idea of curbology. What that means is the parents drive up to the curb of the church, drop their kids off, come back two hours later, and expect them to be godly. Oh, the church should have integral part of of training our our children, training every chapter of of, uh, growth and development in our church with anyone. But the church can never and was never intended to substitute for a parent's influence. However, there are some people who come to church without the gift of godly parents. And in that sense, the church might not be a nutrient and a supplement. The church might be the main meal of influence. And when that's the case, all of us need to act as the church should act and help students and and those who have not had godly parents to understand by example and by teaching who God is and what he expects. So remember that church is a wonderful resource, but it's never a substitute for godly parenting. Be careful trying to follow Christian formulas for parenting or forgetting that we need to grow as well. Listen, someone has said it takes a village. It doesn't take a village. It takes a church to raise a family. Parenting was never intended to be private. By the way, it's not. Everyone sees your kids. Everyone sees what you do. So if you think this is private, it's not. Be careful that your immediate family might be tempted. Your passion for the immediate family could elbow the church out of its importance. That's one extreme. Or on the other side, just think, I'm gonna send my kids to church camp and vacation Bible school and they'll, they'll fix them there. No, no. 
Watch the polar extremes. Number five, corporal punishment is wrong and ineffective. Spanking. Corporal punishment is wrong. It's ineffective. There are countries that have outlawed spanking and outlawed corporal punishment. We're going to have an entire hour devoted to this in our upcoming series. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son. Think about that. To withhold spanking says you hate your son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Very clear, very careful. Listen as closely as you can. Corporal punishment, talk about this later, never is done to the point where it injures a child. It's never done in anger, should never be done in anger. And it's always to be done with self-control, calculation, and deliberation so that it's an effective discipline, not just some meaningless punishment. We'll talk about this later, but basically corporal punishment is in a younger child's life to teach them very simply, sin equals pain. And the other side of that is righteous obedience equals blessing. Again, we'll be discussing this in depth in an upcoming study. Don't hate your kids by withholding the rod. Now be careful, be careful, be careful because we wanted to be really biblical, Kim and I did in our, our parenting and so we had a little piece of rubber that wouldn't sting but not injure that we would use for um, the rod of reproof and we would explain to our kids this is the rod of reproof. This is intended to help you understand that sin doesn't go well with you and we had expl- explanation. We would administer that. We would hug, we would cry, we would kiss which all seemed great, using the rod, until one time we were walking through a hotel lobby at a college camp that I was leading. And one of my sons needed uh, some ministry. Uh, and so we were coming back through the, the, uh, the uh, atrium of this hotel with all of my friends around. And my son was saying, Dad, don't hit me with the rod. And all I could think of was somebody thinking I have some piece of rebar, you know, that I'm, (laughs) it was a little (coughs) instrument that stung but did not injure, just for the record. And we'll talk about what that means in a full discussion on Wednesday night. Number six, sixth myth. Insulation and isolation from the world is possible and effective with our kids. Insulating them, isolating them from the world is possible and it's effective. The problem with that thinking is we think that the world is so bad, but their hearts are so pure, they're so morally innocent. If we can keep them away from the world, we will keep them from sin. But again, the problem is not out there, it's in here. Usually, schooling is the most important factor in this mindset in the church, in, in, in a person's, a parent's development. Now, let me say both sides of this. Homeschooling, Christian schooling is no guarantee for a child's spiritual development or educational excellence. Let's go backwards in that. As a college pastor uh, for many years who read multiple applications of, of multiple reference forms in college, I found sometimes homeschooling really worked against an accurate education. So it's basic help with a kid that he's educated. 
On the other side, some people thought, well, if I can keep my kid at school and away from the world and I can have ultimate and only influence in them, I can keep them on the straight and narrow. There's just no proof of that. And it's, you gotta be careful that your theology of depravity is not thrown out the window with that. On the other side, there are people who say, no, put your kid in, in public school. That's no guarantee for readiness to tackle a sinful world. Nor is it missionary training. I heard someone say this. Now, this is almost a direct quote. Send your kid to school. Let him get beat up and have his bike stolen. That's missionary training. Well, what if they're not gonna be a missionary? They lost their bike and they got beat up. That's not necessarily a good thing. Again, we will devote an entire Wednesday night to the wisdom of each kind of schooling. We, just for the record, Mission Road Bible Church is not a public school church. It's not a Christian school church. It's not a homeschool church. It's not a conversation of classical nature church. It's not a whatever dimension they've talked about. I don't even, can't even keep up with them. We wanna be a biblical church where parents are serious about raising their children. Because remember, parents, listen, do not have the power to control or change a child. We can put up guardrails and encouragements, but only God changes the heart. We wanna do what we can, but that drives us to prayer. Now, I have permission to say what I'm about to say, okay? So before you feel awkward and uncomfortable, I have explicit permission to say what I'm about to say. Our middle son, John, really struggled um, in his obedience to us um, through his younger teen years. Um, and it, 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 broke, it broke Kim and me. Uh, I said at his wedding, 80% of our parenting went into him. And that was pretty true. We tried so hard to convert him. And this is where we came to. My best sermons didn't change him. My best arguments didn't change him. Winning the debates over coffee didn't change him. Our discipline, both corporal and restrictions, didn't change him. And there was a point in which my wife and I, well, frankly, I was about to step out of ministry just to give fuller attention to him. The, the time demands on ministry are such that I think I thought I need to give more attention to, to my son. And it wasn't until, I know, I remember one night where we had a particularly um, discouraging moment where uh, we were in the bedroom, Kim and I were just weeping together and praying. And in that moment, my Calvinism became real. And we said, we can't change our boy. We can't. We've tried everything, but God can. And there was such relief and release in that realization. We didn't have to win all the arguments. We just needed to be faithful. At one point, and again, I have permission to say this, he said, what you're doing is not working. And I remember my wife barking back so fast and saying, we're not doing this because it works. We're doing this because God asks us to. And God's amazing providence. He was saved at the Ascend camp several years ago. Now loves the Lord, wants to go into ministry. And I can tell you all of that is a testimony to God's work in his life. Number seven, adolescence is real. 
adolescence is real. Adolescence is a myth. Because adolescence is defined as a time when a person is no longer a child and not yet an adult. Think about that. You're not a child, nor are you an adult. So what are you? A Martian, a, a monster. What are you? Subhuman. In the Jewish, we're going to study this pretty intensely when we talk about raising teens. In the Jewish mindset, a young man was a man after bar mitzvah. Are you ready for this? Ready to be married. Joseph and Mary were on their way to register for the census. The word means to check in probably for the first time. Joseph and Mary were likely junior high age. Likely junior high. Read Mary's Magnificat again and think of this being a ninth grader. We need to expect from young men and young women what God expects. There's a situation in uh, David and Goliath, uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 33, Saul says to David, you are not, think of the logic of this. You are not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him. Why? Listen, for you are but a youth, but he has been a warrior from his youth. What? So he got his experience, Goliath, this pagan Philistine, when he was a youth. And I'm a youth and I can't? Daniel and his friends, likely in that first wave of Babylonian captivity, junior high, young high school age, when they stood up to the then known king of the world at the risk of their own lives, we need to expect and teach our students, junior and high school, to act like young men and young women. Young men and young women, but men and women. Number eight, move fast. Marriage is inconsequential to parenting. Some people wrongly think that marriage is inconsequential to parenting, that children are unaware of their parents' example. Listen, they are looking and listening and watching all the time. And we as parents are displaying, listen, what we think about God, what we think about his word, how the gospel relates to every day in everything by what we do and say to and with each other. Ephesians 5 says that the husband and wife relationship is to be a mirror of the gospel. Who has the front row in watching that? Our kids. Our kids do. What are you teaching and showing your kids about the gospel by how you relate to one another in your marriage? Again, our kids are the closest and most insightful observers of our theology of marriage, of our theology in marriage. Number nine, very quick. Quality time is more important than quantity of time. Quality time is more important than a quantity of time. That's just not true. I wish I could spend two hours on Thursday night and raise my kids. It's not the case. If you read the Deuteronomy chapter six, and we'll spend a lot of time in our coming series on this, you you you're always on. Everything is a classroom. Always, everywhere, teaching and exemplifying biblical truth. Sports, music, 
Those are not biblical values unless we show in sports and in music how God can be glorified and teach them those things. Number 10, we'll come back to these, but we just don't have time. It's too late to start being biblical. That's a myth. It's too late to start being biblical. We have a God of grace. You can start today, no matter the age of your children, to apply what Paul told Timothy about his own raising. So let's look at this very briefly. If you want an outline, this is the true outline for the sermon. Two indispensable responsibilities of godly parenting. <coughs> Two indispensable responsibilities of godly parenting. I'm just gonna highlight these. We will drill down over weeks on these. The first indispensable responsibility of godly parenting, now back to 2 Timothy is number one, biblical instruction. Biblical instruction. Paul talks about Timothy and his relationship to his mother and his grandmother and the influence that made him who he was to be the pastor of Ephesus. You, however, verse 14, continue, keep striving, keep applying the things you have learned and become convinced of. This is formal instruction from Scripture. By the way, there, there's two categories. There's formal and, and informal. First of all, formal instruction is deliberate, intentional teaching of the Bible. Do you have a time where you sit down with your son or your daughter and you open God's word, you put your finger on a verse and you talk about it? Where they see morning and night, day in and day out, week in and week out, my dad, my mom keeps coming back to this book as the source, as the guide, as the motivation for life. Specifically teaching them to know who God is, what are his ways, the sufficiency of his word, and how to view a broken and lost world. We need to give our children, our sons, our daughters, a worldview that is biblical because they are being taught every day by everyone the exact opposite. We must teach and convince our children that God and his ways are best, worth the pursuit, worth the sacrifice, worth the effort to understand. You know, sometimes I wonder if our kids just look at us and we say, love God, obey God, honor God, read his book. And they say, why? There are answers to that question. And it's not so much just the curriculum of what we're teaching, but explaining to them why that's so important. Look down at verse 15. The curriculum is the sacred writings. You see that? He was taught the sacred writings. And please note that a significant accent of this instruction was evangelistic. From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. By the way, the sacred writings there technically were not the Bible. They were the Old Testament. And they didn't tell everything they needed to know about Christ. They led to the wisdom which led to salvation. Very specifically worded. Which means our Old Testaments need to be understood and interpreted with an eye toward this is the foundation for the coming Messiah. We need to read the New Testament as the explanation of who he is, what he's done, and why it matters. Ending on the fact that he's coming again for his church. 
That's the formal. There's an informal part of this too, which is a readiness to show how all of life is theological. All of life has a connection to God and his word. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall te- verse 7, you shall teach them diligently the commandments to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, formal and informal. Everywhere, all the time, theology class. Everywhere, all the time. Had an interesting uh, situation. This was several years ago during a, an election when my, uh, my son Mark had an assignment to, to um, the election night to draw in blue and red the different states that went to each presidential candidate. And I remember telling him as we were going through it, I had a great discussion watching the news and watching him feverishly color those, those uh, blocks. And why, why is this? Why is, it, why is the outside of the country one and the inside another? What a great discussion. And I kept talking about, well, this is what God's done and God, God, God. And then finally he says, Dad, are you trying to turn this into a Sunday school class? And I said, yes, it is a Sunday school class. It is a theology class. Everything is theological. Formal and informal instruction. Verse 20 of Deuteronomy 6. When your son asks, when, not if, when your son asks in time, saying, what do the commandments and the testimonies and the judgments which the Lord God has commanded you mean? You better have an answer. And we should teach them to such extent that they ask the question. Dad, why do we not watch things that Unbelievers watch. Mom, why do we not use words that, that the guy, the kid down the road uses? Why, why, why? Because they understand that we have a source of what we think and why we think it in God and his word. The first indispensable responsibility of godly parenting is biblical instruction. We're teaching them. Number two, authentic modeling. Authentic modeling. Verse 14, little phrase, knowing from whom you have learned them. What he's saying is the character of, of Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, the character of their life was such that because it was them that taught it, that carried weight. They lived what they taught. They believed what they taught. They were, important phrase, reasonable examples of what they taught. Reasonable, what does that mean? Well, reasonable means that you're not always an example. But when you're not, you confess sin. And you ask forgiveness of your children. You weep over your own sin with them. You don't hover over them as one who has made it. And you're just trying to get them to get on your path. Boy, the formal and informal elements of this modeling are so evident in Deuteronomy 6. Moses tells the people what God told him, which is, you're about to get some land that I promised. (laughs) You're about to enter it. These are what the expectations I have of you. And these are why I expect these things of you. And here's the blessing if you do them. You know what he says? Life will go well and you'll live long on the earth. You'll have a long life. Now, there are outliers to that. 
There are people who get tied to stakes and burnt for their faith. There are people who, who get ravenous diseases and die early. But as a general principle, the way to extend life and blessing is to obey and honor God. That's a general principle. Everything else is an outlier from that. Again, let me read it again. Teach them diligently. When you sit in your house, you're watching an election, watching the news, watching a football game. When you walk by the way, when you're out and about, listen, everything, everywhere is an opportunity to talk about who God is, what he's like, what he's done for us in his son, and how to interpret a world that's gone mad. So that's all an advertisement for the fact that in the coming weeks we are going to study how that applies to the different chapters and seasons of our kids' life. Now, very quick, kids, look at me. Eye contact, ready? You say, uh, uh, who is the kid? If you have parents. That, quali- that makes all of us, unless your parents are, are out of this world. Children, Ephesians 6, verse 1. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Here it is. Really, here's my whole series to kids. Learn what it means to respect and honor your parents, and learn what it means to obey them. But that lesson, parents, is best taught by you, for you, from you, with you at home than it is Pastor Rick telling the whole church. Tell them why they should obey. Tell them that there's blessing if they obey. Be wary, last phrase, be wary of child-centered parenting where your, your kid, your child is so important to you that if they go well, you get proud. And if they struggle, you get discouraged. Don't be child-centered in your parenting. Be Christ-centered in your parenting. And again, we're gonna study what that means together. The gospel is our pattern. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is our joy. The gospel is the only thing that keeps us from going mad at raising little ones. Christ would offer us salvation and save a wretch, as we read earlier in Psalm 22, and a worm like you and me. What an amazing, amazing grace.